0: Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unify DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Innovation's a funny thing, in a cosmic sort of way. While it drives your business forward, it also exposes new risks that can slow you down. As an IT or security professional, every day you need to know, are you vulnerable? Are you compromised? And finally, are you optimized to quickly spot and resolve issues to keep your operation humming? It's your responsibility to help the organization safely and reliably implement the latest connected technologies. So how can you outsmart this little paradox? Rapid7 solutions are powered by advanced analytics and an unmatched understanding of the attacker's mindset. Visit rapid7.com to learn more about how Rapid7 products transform data into action. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Application Security. A couple of announcements here for this section. So, we've recently added the State of Security Education and Training webcast, along with IT Pro TV and Roger Williams University, to our content available on demand at SecurityWeekly.com/on-demand. So, this material is free, and our Security Weekly listeners and subscribers are going to be able to go ahead and enjoy that. Again, just check out the State of Penetration Testing over there as well with Black Hills Information Security. John Strand and team are excellent. Uh, and quite frankly, very talented people. Uh, so yeah, go ahead and check out some of the previously recorded content. Uh, the other announcement that I have is B-Sides Orlando is actually coming up in a little over a week on April 7th. Tickets are $20 and students can register for free with their student ID. For more information, tickets are available at bsidesorlando2018.eventbrite.com. With that, a couple of the uh, news items I wanted to cover in the bugs, breaches, and more section. Now, uh, first is probably going to be of interest to some of our developer audience, which is apparently uh, there are some text editors that are vulnerable via third-party plugins, who knew? Uh, so SafeBreach Labs has actually done uh, a recent study on Sublime, Vim, Emacs, uh, Gedit or Getit, uh, as well as Pico slash Nano. And effectively what they found was inadequate separation of regular and elevated modes, uh, such as folder permissions uh, and integrity is not maintained uh, with some of the integrations. And so that opens the door for an attacker with a regular user permission to actually get an elevated execution of arbitrary code. Uh, I postulate that this may very well be the next uh, major attack vector for people that are developing code, especially if they're pulling in third-party code or third-party libraries. Uh, Paul, this sounds really bad. Are, are you? Hopefully you guys aren't using any of these editors at Security Weekly, are you?
0: Uh, I've experimented, I believe, with Sublime. Uh, and there's another one. Is it Visual Visual Studio? I think I've experimented yes. with. Um, and there's one more on on Linux, and I don't remember what it was. Uh, basically, I just always go back to just using Vim. Um, but my greater concern is is not just the text editor, or even the whole class that is attacking text editors. I think that there are so many projects today, such as web browsers. Uh, if you look at Cody, for example, it's basically a Python framework that you can write add-ons for. Uh, WordPress is a shining example of plugins introducing vulnerabilities. All of these major frameworks that are essentially allowing other people to write code that aren't going through any kind of process uh, to check for vulnerabilities and just allowing users to uh, install that code are going to be vulnerable to these types of things, uh, which is kind of, it's very concerning. And I, I haven't really seen in my opinion, there doesn't exist today uh, a really good plug-in add-on-based platform that has really gotten security right. I, I could be wrong, but all the major ones that we've covered on the show are always because, I mean, Google Chrome is a prime example. I mean, people attack those and release malicious add-ons for Chrome all the time. WordPress is another example. Um, and, and now we have text editors, right? And this is kind of a reoccurring theme we've covered in the past you know, 14 or so years, that anytime there's add-ons like this, there's going to be issues. I, I don't. Is there anyone that gets it right that's able to really vet? I mean, I guess Apple uh, does a really good job of uh, uh, trying to apply security to the iOS. That would maybe be my shining example of third parties developing code and them going through a process. And Apple doing a pretty good job of, of applying security to their platform. You know, if only they did that with macOS, though, you know, so specifically
1: High Sierra, I know one of the other uh, topics we wanted to cover today is that in High Sierra 10.13.2 and in 10.13.3, which was supposed to be patched, uh, you can get plain text passwords for APFS encrypted external volumes via the disk utility app. I mean, what is this, the fourth, fifth uh, major vulnerability in High Sierra that's come out in the last six months? They do it so well when it comes to iOS, and I, I just can't believe that they have fallen so badly from grace with macOS. Um, so, Paul, this what this ends up being, or, or my understanding of this vulnerability is that if you have uh, an encrypted, or excuse me, an unencrypted APFS volume that you are looking to encrypt, when you encrypt it, it will still store all of the encryption passwords and, and things of that nature. Uh, as plain text on the drive, and it was supposed to have been fixed in ten point thirteen point two, uh, and then ends up being uh, vulnerable in ten point thirteen point three. I don't know what's going on over there, Paul, but I'm starting to get concerned about what you know the future of macOS at this point. Any any thoughts there? What are you guys using? You guys aren't using macOS or any Mac
0: development, I don't believe. Uh, I oh. do. well, I have an iMac as my primary desktop, um, and yes, I too am concerned about the future of macOS. I think that Apple has shown little. Uh, commitment to really improving the security and I think that's most evident in their lack of a public bug bounty program for macOS uh, why Why wouldn't they have an open uh, public bug bounty I believe they have an invite only one I think they should talk to our fine friends at bug crowd and have a bug bounty program for macOS um, that's I think they do have one for iOS correct yeah, they do, and in fact,
1: I, I believe it is that they do not have one for macOS whatsoever, but they do have a private invite only for iOS. Uh, and even oh, okay. still, my understanding is uh, for iOS, even at their exceedingly high payment levels in the 250K plus range for some of the vulnerabilities that they're willing to pay out for in iOS, uh, you know, it, it's a tribute to Apple's work in the iOS uh, space that the vulnerabilities that effectively they're paying almost you know a quarter of a mil for, are selling on the black market or the gray market for a million or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, if only they had that kind of ecosystem uh, and security uh, adherence in Mac OS, especially in High Sierra as the the latest release that has just been swamped with problems. Uh, I think everyone would, would benefit, especially the developers because let's face it, a lot of developers are using MacBooks of some kind. Uh, yep. I can't tell you how many times they go to a conference uh, or even go to a, a developer related like DevOps days and that's almost what everybody's using better Chromebooks which uh, which I know seem to be pretty good from everything I'm hearing I am a little leery of you know Chrome OS but still uh, I will wait and see how that turns out
0: yeah I have a, a Chromebook <laughs> Chromebook on my left and a Linux laptop uh, on my on the right and at home I use uh, a Linux system and I I, I want to cut to it from my from my main desktop but there are still apps that I can only get on OS 10. And along with a command yeah. line that i can you know run docker i can run uh you know native uh linux type you know software and commands uh it, it's just really great um so i haven't made the full jump it'd be interesting when it, that does come time to update my laptop if i abandon it altogether we'll see i don't know i still like mac os so
1: same i mean i'm on i'm on uh sierra so i haven't updated to high sierra because of all the problems we just can to seem to be seeing. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm a fan of Mac OS. I feel like once you've bought into the ecosystem, you, you kind of have to go all in, right? Like it's unfortunate that in some ways that's how Apple gets you and keeps you. Uh, I will say this, uh, years from now when I eventually have to update my 2015 13 uh, inch MacBook Pro, which I consider to be the last developer edition MacBook Pro, uh, I would, I'm going to be hard pressed because if they have this touch bar and USB-C stuff going on years from now, Without like you know a simple dongle uh, infrastructure, I'm yeah. going to be real upset.
0: What else we got? So, in the news?
1: Uh, uh yeah, with that we got a couple other stories here I wanted to cover. Uh, one actually that I mentioned here at the the top of the show, which is uh, GitHub is doing some really interesting work in scanning uh, libraries as part of their uh, platform, and then notifying uh, the developers of those those uh, projects about the vulnerabilities. So. Uh, Recently, GitHub found over 4 million vulnerabilities in 500,000 repositories, uh, which it then displayed an alert to the repository admins uh, for their dependency graphs and repository homepages. So they were looking uh, specifically at Ruby and at JavaScript. And on December 1st, they basically launched this and over 450,000 identified vulnerabilities uh, were resolved by those repository owners uh, by either removing the dependency or, in this case, changing it to a more secure version, which is you know what we talked about at the top of the show. Sure. If you can't patch it, maybe update it uh, or remove it and find something else. But wait, so, now,
0: they found... Because the numbers are confusing. Uh, when I was covering this in Hack Naked News, they found a million vulnerabilities? Is that what you said? It five, million. five million. Five million. Five million. And it uh, sounds actually, like... Four million. Four, four million, million. But the 450,000 number is fixed vulnerabilities, not repositories, because it was 4 million vulnerabilities over 500,000 repositories. And then they give you that 450,000 number. And you're like, wow, a lot of stuff was fixed. But I think that 450,000 is vulnerabilities off of that 4 million that have been fixed, which still leaves a ton of vulnerabilities uh, out there that have not been fixed.
1: It does. It does. And in fact, they actually do go on to say, though, that with the vulnerability resolution, uh, they had something like a a detection of around 30% of those ended up later being fixed. Uh, so 30% of the, the 4 million is mm-hmm. what it sounds like. Uh, and then in this case, 15% of alerts are dismissed within seven days of being notified. So whether that means they're actually patching or not, right, you know, right, right. who knows. Um, but to that end, it shows that they have some activity or at least some active maintainers of those repositories. Uh, so it, it's good to see that they're, more actively saying hey look you are probably a major open source library that's being used and you have vulnerabilities yeah now the the uh, repository owners uh, or at least the contributors can hopefully fix that which is awesome which actually leads very nicely into the next piece which is google's actually rewarding in terms of like a bounty for patching open uh, open source software bugs hmm. uh, which i found really interesting as well because google operates fuzzers uh, several fuzzers in this case as they state that continually discover bugs in open source software similar to what github was was leveraging Uh, and as of march this so just this month they went ahead and they're actually starting to offer patch rewards so if a maintainer of one of those uh, repositories that ends up having vulnerabilities fixes the bug they get a reward for it Uh, then after 90 days if the bug is still not fixed and someone Effectively pushes a commit to go ahead and have that bug fixed. The person that went ahead and, and offered that fix is the one that gets the reward.
0: I like it. I, I think- like it a lot. I don't see. I, I don't see really much downside to this at all. I think Google's doing a great thing for the community and in incentivizing open source projects, probably the ones that they rely on uh, to to get fixed, which is that's totally fine. That's cool. So the one, the only concern that I potentially
1: have around this is if we start to see people gaming this system, right? So those those people that start to build libraries that are, oh uh, yeah, I'm, I'm leave this vulnerable
0: because I want to make, you know. Yeah, a, that's, a I was being overly optimistic. Yes, there is a, <laughs> a potential gaming of a, of the system that could, uh, it, but like basically don't do that. That's, that's just unethical in my opinion, but uh, people will still do it, but.
1: It'll happen, and I think that what will eventually happen is Google will start to identify those those rogue developers and maybe you know cut them off, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I imagine if a payment goes through, they're not probably going to be paying in cryptocurrency. They're going to actually be like, okay, where can we send this funding to? Uh, and then start to identify users that way, hopefully. I mean, it's Google, so they probably already know who you are anyway, whether or not you uh, are them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the other story that I did want to briefly cover is uh, skipping over to food for thought here. Uh, which is going to be let's see actually hold on just a second let me take a look real quick if the, if you build it items or oh yeah one other one that i thought would be good to cover is uh this whole idea about uh switching to serverless which i thought was really interesting because you're starting to hear you know kind of a rumble about it uh aws lambda being one of those big ones that's coming out and admittedly I, i'm somewhat new to trying to get an understanding of serverless so from, from reading what was uh, story number seven under the, if you build it, they will come section, it talks a little bit about serverless is effectively taking uh, the idea of you know a Docker container, which is a, a set of code that's all containerized. And it's almost like containerizing each function as opposed to containerizing the entire application. So the idea is to build really loosely coupled functions and then have the functions each be somewhat independent of one another. Um, I don't know about you, Paul, but that kind of blows my mind a little bit.
0: Yeah, I th- and I think that, you know, it's certainly still possible. It, it, and so my only reservation was, like, as long as I can it can support my DevOps process, it, now it's coming to the point where, like, it doesn't matter if it's a container or some kind of service that you're using from, in this case, largely Amazon and, and others. But Amazon has a lot of these services available. We actually just did this in our own application. We said, well, why would we maintain this container with the infrastructure and, and code uh, and schemas all in the container when we can just use a, uh, a database service? Uh, what does Amazon call it? RDS? Uh, yep. Yeah, re- is it remote dated database service? Something like I forget what it stands for.
1: And it is RDS. I don't know what it stands yeah.
0: for. So RDS basically gives you instances of a database, the ability to take snapshots and sync schemas between them. That was one of my tasks for the developers this week. I'm like, that's fine. I think it's great. I think it's less maintenance. Um, as long as we can make sure that when we push changes through that it happens and we can revert back. I'm like, it's great. And I think this is going to be uh, potentially the uh, the wave of the future for implementing the DevOps process. Rather than trying to orchestrate a ton of containers, you're really just orchestrating Uh, in the cloud and all of these services. We'll see how it pans out. You know, certainly you need an application server and a web server. I don't know how that's gonna pan out.
1: The the problem I think will be um, just the the architecting, right? Like when you're architecting to be in a container versus uh, in serving up microservices versus architecting functionality to be very loosely coupled and independent of one another as an application, it's uh, as traditional developers like yourself or, or even myself working in like Python, for example, right? Thinking of individual units of Python being able to be entirely separated from one another as a, as a piece of code or a piece of functionality is it's still a little bit mind blowing. And I'm going to have to wrap my head around it more. I know that there's a couple of people in the Boston area that are, are pretty talented with this. So I imagine we'll bring in a couple of guests that uh, can teach us more about serverless. Sure. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, but, you
0: definitely give up some control, right? Um, yeah. But you also tie yourself to whoever is providing that serverless technology. So like in our case, right now we're tied to Amazon. And I think that our app is small enough where right now that's not going to make a difference. If you're a startup and you're looking to provide this as a service, do you really want to be that closely and tightly coupled to a particular cloud provider? And that that's a, a question that many answer by saying, no, we're not going to use this technology so that we could more easily expand and, and grow our application into other uh, cloud services and, and move it around less independent of what Amazon is providing. Relational database service. Thank you, John.
1: There it is. There it is. And, and so uh, I would say as well, down toward the bottom of the article, they actually do cover other tooling such as serverless framework and, and other things that you can use to uh, leverage either you know cross-cloud functionality for serverless or what have you. So check out that story again, number seven, under, under the If You Build It, They Will Come. Uh, that will be interesting for some of our developers, as well as perhaps even some of our security folks that are thinking, how the heck do I secure a function? Uh, so uh, with that, I did want to cover just a couple of items and food for thought. Uh, I will leave the cartoons that I that I left here at the bottom of the show notes for our listeners. That's uh, number five, six, and seven. Uh, the developers will probably laugh, and I think that the last one, uh, especially number seven, is tied to this latest Cambridge Analytica problem. So uh, it's by a, a comic that's a, a web comic called Commit Strip, and uh, it's basically a, a developer, a, a Scrum master of some kind, a server guy, and then like the business that they're trying to work with. And uh, the the cartoons that they come up with on a regular basis are hilarious. So I hope that our listeners go and enjoy those. Uh, but I did want to cover uh, Micah Zenko, who actually, Paul, you had on Paul Security Weekly, yeah, I think, I a couple say, of years ago.
0: That sounds familiar.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. He wrote, uh, it was a Red Team book. I can't remember the exact name of it. Um, but to that end, uh, he has a site or he, he's actually cited on this Red Team Wisdom from Experts uh, page, which is uh, story number one under Food for Thought. And I wanted to highlight just two quotes uh, from that wisdom page that I thought are great, and I, I actually take the heart. Uh, the first is, when you hear best practices, run for your lives. The Titanic mm. was built with best practices. It was faithfully operated in accordance with best practices, which is from retired U.S. Army Colonel Gregory Fontenot. Uh, then the second quote is, the best way to get management excited about a disaster recovery plan is to burn down the building across the street which was from Dan Irwin, security officer at Dow Chemical, Uh, which it's like, man, talk about just being cutthroat, huh?
0: Yeah, it's a bit extreme.
1: (laughs) Right? Um, And so the other one, and just kind of the last one that we'll wrap up with from a story's perspective is uh, story number two under food for thought, which is that coding styles survive compilation and can be de-anonymized and effectively de-anonymized programmers uh, from an executable binary. So this was a really interesting article from, uh, it it seemed like a, I guess, academic type article from a a person, Kaliskin et al, uh, that covers some de-anonymization techniques that they leveraged against uh, techniques on binaries that had debugging symbols removed, aggressive compiler optimizations, and uh, in this case, traditional obfuscation techniques applied. Uh, And they were still able to take anonymous authorship binaries and actually break them down as to who effectively had actually authorized those binaries. I thought this was really interesting for a a few reasons, Paul, which is, first, uh, in this case, attribution is hard. But if you can start to build personas around who's developing what, uh, or at least to the degree possible, what code is being used where, uh, I think that makes attribution a little bit more interesting from a malware perspective. But also, if you're working at somebody like, I don't know, the Tailored Access Operations at the NSA, right? So suddenly you're writing tools for... Uh, the federal government and if somebody ends up getting their hands on those tools as it seemed to have happened with shadow brokers you effectively as a developer could be de-anonymized and actually like picked out of a crowd effectively for for having developed that stuff so curious to get your thoughts there paul especially it's kind of like the whole idea of uh, of back in world war Two, they had the idea of a fist which is uh how you tapped out the morse code uh on on the radio signals so this is kind of similar uh really curious to get your thoughts
0: yeah, I, well, I think it's interesting from an attribution standpoint, because uh, I still don't think it really helps all that much. <laughs> because, yeah, you might be able to tie it back to the person that wrote it, but the person who uses it might be someone completely different. Uh, so, yes, it could uh, help uh, attribute the author, uh, certainly, uh, which is kind of interesting. But you, you, people using it are different from the author uh, in many cases.
1: The the way I think of it, uh, in, in the potential, you know, uh, end of days scenario, right? So this is probably pretty far off, I hope. Uh, but to the extent that when you go and you have a formal military strategy, is not necessarily to go and attack the runway. It's to go and attack the factories that make the planes, yes. uh, because they can't build anymore. This is that same sort of idea sure. writ large. You get rid of the person that writes the tools suddenly, uh, that can cause all sorts of um, you know, development problems for your adversaries. So that freaked me out a little bit when I was looking at it, but it will be interesting to see how development practices change over time to perhaps move away from this ability to actually be de-anonymized. So uh, with that though, I just want to thank everyone for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commit and stay classy.